Welcome to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 4, as we follow along with today's lesson. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Quite a confession, because if he found no fault in him, then why would he have him scourged? It is thought that Pilate felt that the scourging would placate their bloodthirsty desire for his death, that they would be satisfied if he were subjected to this horrible torture of the scourging. According to the historians, many times the prisoners would not even survive the scourging. Many times they would bleed to death or die during this torture. And so he said, I'm bringing him forth to declare to you I find no fault in him. Again, God protecting the innocency of Jesus making sure that we know that he was innocent, that he was the innocent one suffering for the guilty. Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife sent a message to him and said, have nothing to do with this just man. I've suffered many things in a dream because of him. And the thief on the cross said, he has done nothing amiss. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crowns, the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, behold the man. A man like Pilate had never met before. It's interesting, as you read the story of Jesus before Pilate, it is more or less like Pilate is the one that is really being on, that is on trial here rather than Jesus. Jesus has sort of taken control. It's as though he is in control, which indeed he was, of the events. Pilate was was the helpless one. Pilate was the puppet. Uh, He was the one that was caught up in this whole movement and uh, he was the helpless one. Jesus was the one who was in control. When the chief priest, therefore, and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, take ye him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. Then the Jews answered him, and they said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. You see, according to Jewish tradition, the Messiah would be the Son of God because the prophecy said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will shall, be, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A scripture that they recognized as prophetic of the Messiah. A son is given. God is giving his son. And so when they, when Peter uh, responded to the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When Jesus was being interrogated by the high priest, he said, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answered, you said it. He said, are you then the son of God? Because the Messiah, according to their belief, would indeed be the son of God. And Jesus again answered, you've said it. And the priest tore his robe and said, why do we need any further witnesses? You've heard himself. Uh, you've heard from his own mouth the blasphemy. And what do you say? And they say he's worthy of death. So when Pilate, though, heard the claim of Jesus, he was even more afraid. He was, he was fearful of Jesus. He, he never had a man quite like this before. Behold the man. I mean, he, I believe, really admired Jesus. And so he went again into the judgment hall, took Jesus back inside for further interrogation. And he said unto Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not answer him. Then Pilate said unto him, don't you speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? Now here Pilate is, is really indicting himself because he's, he's acknowledging I have the power. I can have you crucified or I can release you. He's acknowledging that he possessed that power. Thus, in having Jesus or allowing Jesus to be crucified, he has to take responsibility because he had the power to release him. But Jesus answered, and his answer wasn't very comforting to Pilate. You could have no power at all against me except it were given to you from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. Now you, you're sinning, but they have the greater sin. There, theirs, is the, theirs is a sin against knowledge. Pilate really doesn't know quite what's going on. And theirs is the greater sin. And from then, that time, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. They're pulling out their trump card. They had already made complaints against Pilate. There had been official complaints against him. There wasn't any real love lost between the Jews and Pilate. There was a lot of irritation there. And another complaint to Caesar would put Pilate in bad light. They knew it. They knew that they had Pilate more or less over the barrel. 
They were playing their cards out well. As they bring up the issue of Caesar, you will not be looked upon as Caesar's friend if you allow a man to claim himself the king. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Quite a statement for the leader of the, the religious leader of the people. Quite a statement. Quite a confession. You see, the chief priests were not really spiritual men. They were using religion for their own profit and their own gain. They were extremely wealthy men because they had learned a way to profit off of religion. Their king really was their desire for power, for money. Pilate realized that the charges against Jesus were just trumped up charges. They were fearful that if Jesus were allowed to continue to minister, that all people would go after him. They would lose their power. They would lose their position. And so this acknowledgement, we have no king but Caesar. It's interesting that in the subsequent years, there did develop in Rome the deifying of the Caesar. And every year, a person would have to offer incense to the image of Caesar and declare that Caesar is Lord. It was, it was required of those in the Roman community. The Christians would refuse to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. And it was a capital offense not to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And thus, when the Christians would refuse to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, they would be put to death in very cruel and torturous ways. There's a very interesting book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and he lists in his book the martyrs for Jesus Christ in the first few centuries of the church and many of the accounts tell of how that the executioner pleaded with the person to just say, Caesar is Lord, because the executioner had pity on them and did not want to execute them. But the Christians would refuse to do so. And millions of them actually went to their death for refusing to say that Caesar is Lord. But here, the chief of the Jews' religious system 
were saying, we have no king but Caesar. That they refused to acknowledge the kingdom of God in their lives. So then he delivered them therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Now, the custom was there were four soldiers that were given the duty or, uh, of crucifying uh, the person. And the person was required to carry his own cross. And there would be a soldier that would go in front of him holding a sign, which was the accusation and the charge for which he was being crucified. And they would go outside of the city because under the law they could not crucify them within the city. But they would usually take sort of a circuitous route through the city to go outside so that more people could see the prisoner and see the charges against him to put the fear of the law in the hearts of the people. Three soldiers would march behind the prisoner and they would make their way through the streets of Jerusalem and then out to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, where they would then nail them to the cross that they had carried and uh, put the cross in the ground and the prisoner would uh, hang there until he died. Now, the Romans would let the prisoner just hang there until they died, uh, of sort of suffocation ultimately. And sometimes they would hang there for days before they would die. And uh, it was a horrible, torturous uh, method of putting people to death. But the Jews had a law, interestingly enough, a, a law that dealt with, with hanging on a tree. And um, in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22, uh, there was this law given uh, that if a person was hanged, that they... Uh, should not um, allow them to to stay uh, overnight. In other words, uh, they were to uh, see that death came and, and they weren't to uh, keep them overnight. Let's see if we can find it real quickly here. Um, I should have made a note and I didn't. I thought I'll never forget that. 21, 22, that was it. Thank you. Very good. And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he be to be put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For if he is hanged on a tree, he is accursed. Of God, that the land be not defiled 
which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So if they hung a person on a tree, they were not to allow him to be there overnight, but and they were to bury him that day. It's interesting that the Jews to the present day uh, have the custom of burying the person the day they die. Uh, Rabin was sort of a special case as they were waiting for all the dignitaries to get there, but it is traditional in, in the Jewish culture to bury the person because of the scripture the day they die. Paul makes mention of this particular verse in Galatians as he is saying that Christ uh, suffered the curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon the tree. So uh, they led him away to be crucified. Now the sign that the soldier would carry in front of the cross was then nailed on top of the cross above the prisoner's head so that if everybody that saw them hanging there would know the charges against them. So Jesus, bearing his cross, verse 17, went forth into the place called the place of a skull, which in the Hebrew is Golgotha. In Latin, it is Calvary, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the middle. In Greek, it's Calvary. Latin, it would be cranium. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, and this is the accusation now, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the uh, city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then one of the chief priests of the Jews came to Pilate and said, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, but I have written, I have written. It's interesting, Pilate is, is real adamant in this. In a minor thing, I mean, it, it, you know, this is a, the major thing was he, he gave in on the major thing and that was the crucifixion. Here on the minor thing, he's holding tough. You know, and, and it's an inconsistency that we often see in life. People can allow major, like Jesus said, you, you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And, and, and that's quite often the case with people. They, they hold tight on little non-consequential issues, but on major issues, they cave in. So Pilate Declared what I have written, I have written. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and they made four parts to every soldier part. As I said, there were four soldiers involved in getting the prisoner from the judgment hall out to the place of crucifixion. And thus, uh, there were five parts to the Jewish garment and uh, each one threw dice for which part he would get. But then they came to the tunic, the robe, and it was special. Now, generally, they'd just cut it in four pieces and the guy would get a fourth of it. But they said, this is too nice to cut. Let's, let's go ahead and throw dice to see who gets the robe. And so they cast lots to see who would get the robe. 
And the interesting thing is that this again was the fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22. It declared, they will part my garments among them, but for my vesture, they will cast lots. That was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, a note here, it was near, the the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. Today in Jerusalem, uh, across from uh, the wall of the city that goes between the Damascus Gate and uh, the Herod's Gate, there is across the valley there a short distance of maybe 200 feet. The side of the mountain, which was Mount Moriah, because the temple was built on the site of Mount Moriah. It is the top, really, of Mount Moriah. The valley has been formed because of a quarry. The stones there are uh, just naturally sort of in stratus, And they made great building stones because uh, they were flat and lying in strata. So all they had to do is drill holes, put the wooden pegs in, and then soak the wooden pegs until they swelled and and they could split these rocks. And uh, they used them for Solomon's temple and they used them for uh, much of the building in Jerusalem. Herod used the stones and there was this large quarry uh, of uh, from in this particular area on the north side of the city of Jerusalem because uh, it did lend so well to making building blocks. And thus this valley was formed. Originally, Abraham's time, it was just a straight mountainside up to the top. But when Jerusalem became then a city, this was the area where the stone was quarried for the city. And it's quite easy to Uh, see when you are there. On the wall, uh, as you look at the wall from the street side, the modern street side, you see that the bedrock goes way on up. You can see that the, the actual natural hillside, the wall was built on top. And then you can look over to the other side where the top of Mount Moriah is and you see the same uh, thing that the, the, the cliff there has been formed uh, as a result of the quarry. The side of the mountain has the appearance of a skull. It looks like the eyes and the, the nose bridge of a skull. And many believe that that is the place of the skull or Golgotha because of the appearance of a skull there on the side of the mountain, and very possibly the actual site of the crucifixion of Jesus. If so, then people on the wall of the city of Jerusalem, looking across, could see him hanging there, and of course could hear him as he uttered his seven sayings uh, from the cross. Uh, The place there is right next to an ancient garden. 
uh, a garden that was replete with cisterns and all for the watering of the plants. And the garden was also a place where in the wall, uh, the rock wall, they had hewn out certain tombs. And I say that because as we get to the end of the chapter, it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein never man had been laid. And they laid Jesus, therefore, because the Jews' preparation day and the sepulcher was close at hand. So um, many believe that what is today called the garden tomb is indeed the, the, the garden that was near the place where Jesus was crucified and that that is actually the site of Golgotha. It, it does have a lot of merit to that. So the prophecy was fulfilled as they did not tear his robe, but they cast lots, and thus the scripture fulfilled. They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and also his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Four ladies standing by the cross. First of all, his mother Mary. You remember when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple to present him to the Lord. And this godly man who served the Lord was promised by God that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's salvation, the Messiah. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in, he lifted Jesus up and he said, Now, Father, let thy servant depart in peace, for I have seen your salvation. And then he turned to Mary and he prophesied to her of the greatness of her child. But he said, A sword shall pierce also through your heart. And I'm certain that as Mary was standing there watching her son, being abused and crucified, that a sword pierced her heart as she stood there watching him. Mary's sister was there. Now, from the other Gospels, we know that it was Salome. And Salome happened to be the mother of James and John, which means that James and John were cousins to Jesus. Their mother was the sister of Mary. So uh, they had known Jesus probably then from childhood because they were cousins to Jesus. She was there, plus Mary, the wife of Cleophas. Uh, we know that one of the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, one of them was named Cleopas, and so this perhaps was his wife. And, of course, Mary Magdalene. 
And what we know about her is that Jesus had cast seven devils out of her. She was from Magdala, that little village on the shores of the Galilee. And uh, her life was miserable. She was tortured prior to meeting Jesus. And she was devoted completely to him because he had set her free. And she just uh, followed him and, and was totally devoted to him. So the four women, and we know that John, the disciple, was there. Now, when Jesus therefore saw his mother standing there, no doubt weeping, and the disciples standing by her, whom he loved. Now, again, it's interesting. John is talking about himself, but he doesn't call himself by name. He just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we get this uh, Distinction concerning John. He's called John the Beloved. And we are told that he is disciple that Jesus loved, but we are told that only by John. We're not told that in any of the Gospels. Uh, it was just uh, John uh, sets that up for himself and says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And I believe that John no doubt felt that Jesus loved him more than the others. And I believe that Peter probably felt that he was loved by Jesus more than the others, as did Matthew and the rest of them. I believe that Jesus had a way of dealing with people that every one of them felt special. They, every one of them felt that Jesus was going to make them one of the chiefs in the kingdom because they were always arguing over that. Why would they argue over that? But what they all felt that I'm special to Jesus. But the truth of the matter is they were all right. They are all special. And you are special. It's important, though, that you know it. You know, to, to refer to yourself, I'm the one that Jesus loves. You're right. He loves you. You're special to him, and he wants you to know that you're special to him. The important thing is that you do know that. You're very special to the Lord. There's no one in the world like you as far as he is concerned. You're very special to him. He loves you, and he wants you to know that. Now, John came to that recognition. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And he said to his mother, woman, behold thy son. Now, he's not saying, look at me, but he's indicating John at this point. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. In other words, he is saying, okay, John, take care of her. Watch over her. The relationships that we have in Christ are often far closer than the human relationships that we have in our family. 
The brothers of Jesus at this point did not believe in him. They did not believe until after his resurrection. And so there was a closer bond between John and Mary because of their common belief in Jesus as the Messiah. So John is commissioned by Jesus to take care of Mary. And John tells us that from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. He took the commission of Jesus to take care of Mary. Now, after this, that is, after taking care of the final uh, filial, filial relationships, taking care of his mother, now he enters into the spiritual dimension and aspects of the cross. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the purposes of God are being fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. In Psalm 69, 21, it declares that they gave me vinegar to drink in my thirst. So that was a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And so in order that it might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar that was set there. And they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. See, there was one little item of prophecy that had not yet been fulfilled. And so Jesus said, I thirst. Get that final item set. And now that that's accomplished, now that he tastes the vinegar, that scripture is fulfilled. And so uh, he said, it's finished. It's completed. It's done. The prophecies are fulfilled. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost or gave up the spirit. It's a definition of death that is accepted today. When a person no longer has any heart activity or brain activity, the heart can still keep pumping uh, artificially, but when the brain goes flat, the spirit is departed, and a person is considered dead. And so he gave up his spirit. The Luke's gospel tells us that he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And uh, he um, bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. Now, Jesus had said, no man takes my life from me. I give my life. For I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. No man takes my life from me. That sort of puts an end to that debate that's been going on through the years as who is truly responsible for the death of Jesus, the Romans or the Jews. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I give my life. I have the power 
to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And so Jesus dismissed his spirit. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. Of course, we already looked in Deuteronomy 21 there uh, and saw that it was the Jewish law that they weren't to leave them hanging, but were to bury them the same day. So that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day. Now, the first day after Passover was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, whatever day it fell on, was a Sabbath day and was to be treated as a Sabbath day in that all of the laws that pertain to the Sabbath day uh, were fulfilled on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And thus it was a high Sabbath day. It is my belief that Jesus was crucified on a Thursday rather than on the traditional Friday. That that Friday was the first day of unleavened bread, thus the high Sabbath day for the holiday of unleavened bread. The following day, Saturday, was the common weekly Sabbath day so that his body then remained in the grave for three days and three nights, according to his own prediction. I think that the fact that John points out that what Sabbath day was a high day, he points out that it was a special Sabbath day, not the regular weekly Sabbath, but the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in the Jewish calendar, the day begins at sundown. So Jesus had the feast of the Passover with his disciples on Wednesday night. The Passover would go until Thursday night, sundown. And uh, then, as I, as I pointed out, the Friday uh, would be the, the Sabbath day. Saturday would be the Sabbath day. And then Sunday he rose from the dead, the first day of the week. That's just my opinion. And uh, you can take it or leave it. So in order to hasten the death, they would take a mallet and they would break the legs of the prisoners. They would crush the bones. And uh, it would just bring on death. And because they didn't want the bodies hanging there on the Sabbath day, they came with the mallets and they broke the bones of the thieves that were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side 
And there came forth blood and water. There is a sack around the heart, and when the heart ruptures, it fills with fluid and with blood. And there are doctors who have ascertained that Jesus died actually of a ruptured heart. And that when the soldier pierced his heart, the idea was to make sure that he was dead. He appeared to be dead, make sure, thrust the spear through his heart. And as he hit that little sack around the heart, the, the fluid, the water fluid with blood came forth. And it, it's perhaps a, a good hint to us of his cause of death, a ruptured heart. Now, this is all a part of, of God's plan because uh, these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled a bone of him shall not be broken. That was prophesied in Psalm uh, 34.20 and in Numbers 9.12. And there is another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's in Zechariah chapter 12. So uh, these things were not just done happenstance. Uh, this was just not you know, the a capricious action of a Roman soldier. But this is a part of God's divine ordained plan that God wrote about over 500 years and over 1,000 years in advance of the actual happening. Now, it's like us sitting down and writing about something that's going to happen to a man who will be on the earth a thousand years from now or 500 years from now and start giving details of, of how this person is going to be put to death and add all of these little extra uh, interesting kind of details and then have it come to pass 500 years later. You see how impossible that would be. It proves that the scriptures are divinely inspired by God and it proves that Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah. No one else could fulfill these prophecies or have fulfilled them, only Jesus. Now after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, we were told earlier that there were many among the Pharisees who believed in Jesus, but secretly, because they feared the Jews, because the Jews had already decided that if anybody believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they would not be allowed in the synagogue. And so there were the secret disciples, and it's interesting how that his disciples had forsaken and fled. Uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So they had fled. But here now, the secret disciples step forward. Again, that's interesting, and, and, and it's a lot like human nature. There are some people who in minor things fall apart. But in major things, they, they really stand out. 
My dad was, was that way. He could take any kind of a major catastrophe and handle it well, but the little things would drive him buggy. I mean, he could get irritated over the smallest things, but let something really major happen, and man, he was just the man of the hour. I mean, he was cool, he was collected, he was able to just handle things and direct traffic and everything else, but uh, it was just the little things that he couldn't handle in life. And here's Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple because of the fear of the Jews. But here at this time, he steps forward. He goes to Pilate and asks permission to take away the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. He inquired of the centurion and he was um, confirmed by the centurion to be dead and so... He gave Joseph the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. Now we know that name back in John chapter 3. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was among the the Jewish uh, religious leaders. Uh, And uh, he was of the Sanhedrin, that is the religious ruling class. And uh, he came out also. He was the one, John tells us, who came to Jesus by night, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Not that would not be a hundred pounds or pounds, but uh, this was a measure of weight that was translated pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. They would take this linen cloth and they would wrap it around the body, around and around and around, and they would put the spices in between the the wrappings. They would wrap it and then lay spices and wrap it and all. And that was their their traditional way of of, uh, embalming a body, so to speak, uh, before they put it in the... um, sarcophagus or the tombs, which were of limestone. And the reason why they were called sarcophagus is that the limestone does um, cause the flesh to uh, disintegrate very fastly. Sarcophagus in Latin is flesh eater. And uh, so a sarcophagus would be used over and over again because uh, they would eat up the flesh very rapidly. And so you could put, you know, the next generation in the same sarcophagus, and so they were quite handy uh, burial places. And so they wound it in the linen clothes with the spices as the manner of Jews was to bury. And then John tells us, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher in which was never a man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Let's turn in our Bibles to the 20th chapter of John as we continue our journey. Next Sunday night, we'll finish the Gospel of John, and then we'll launch into the book of Acts. So, John chapter 20. The first day of the week, that would be Sunday morning, 
cometh Mary Magdalene early. The word translated early there is the word for the fourth watch. Uh, The Roman soldiers had the night set up into four watches. And the first uh, watch uh, went from six to nine, then nine to 12, 12 to three. The fourth watch was from three to six in the morning. So early in the morning, uh, when it was yet dark, Mary Magdalene came unto the sepulchre and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Now in reading the various gospel accounts concerning the resurrection day, there do seem to be discrepancies in the accounts. In some of the other gospels, they have Mary Magdalene coming with the other ladies. Uh, In the other gospels, they have the other ladies on their way back from the tomb, uh, meeting Jesus, holding him by his feet, and worshiping him. So what probably is the chronological events on Easter Sunday morning is that Mary started off with the other ladies for the tomb. In her eagerness and desire to get there, she went ahead of the other ladies. When she came to the tomb and saw that the stone was rolled away, her immediate surmisal was that they had moved the body of Jesus. And so she, without waiting for the other ladies to get there, ran to tell Peter and John that uh, the uh, body of Jesus was moved or that the stone was away from the door of the sepulcher. The other ladies then arrived. They saw the angels who told them that Jesus was risen and told them to go tell the other disciples. We'll return with more of our in-depth study, the Gospel of John, in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus is risen, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 19 through 20 when visiting the wordforwardtoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. 
And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you again for the love that you manifested towards us when you allowed your son, in fact, you sent him to fulfill all of the prophecies, knowing that he would be despised and rejected, knowing that he would be physically abused, knowing that he would be submitted to the tortures of the scourging and the tortures of the cross. And yet, Lord, your love for us is so great that you were willing to give your only begotten Son in order that he might make possible our coming to you and fellowshipping. Oh, Lord, Our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How marvelous are your works. How infinite your love. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you first loved us and gave your son for our redemption. Thank you, Jesus that you were willing to obey the Father, go to the cross and make the way to eternal life. Lord, help us that we might adequately express our love to you by our deeds and by our actions, not hoping that through them we can be saved, but Lord, just letting them be expressions of appreciation for what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. God is looking for someone that he can use to accomplish his purposes on this earth. The apostles were more than willing to be used by the Lord. So what was it that gave them the certain spiritual characteristics necessary to be used by God and to be a powerful, godly influence to change the world? Well, in a book entitled The Man God Uses, Pastor Chuck Smith brings the scriptures to life as he examines the book of Acts. He reveals the secret to the apostles' boldness, the five essential components of prayer, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So if you've ever wanted to accomplish more for the kingdom of God and to be an instrument that he can use, then I encourage you to pick up a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Man God Uses. To order a copy of this book in print or download a digital copy, please visit thewordfortoday.org or call the word for today at 800-272-9673.